Welcome to the latest edition of the Cal Podcast with me, Colonel Henry Levine Usher. Today's guest is the Chief of the General Staff, General Sir Patrick Sanders. Commissioned into the Royal Green Jackets in 1984, General Sanders served as a junior officer in Northern Ireland, undertaking further tours in Kosovo in 1999 and Bosnia and Herzegovina in 2001. Subsequently, as commanding officer of 2nd Battalion of the Royal Green Jackets in 2005, he managed the transition of his battalion to become 4th Battalion of the Rifles and then saw action with them in Basra when deployed to Iraq in 2007. After subsequent staff roles, General Patrick commanded the 20th Armoured Brigade in August 2009, a role in which he was deployed to command Task Force Helmand in Afghanistan in October 2011. As a senior staff officer, he served as the Chief of Defence Staff's Liaison Officer to the United States Joint Chiefs of Staff in 2012, and then on return to the UK became Assistant Chief of Defence Staff Operations in the Ministry of Defence from March 2013. Having taken over command of the 3rd Division in 2015, he subsequently assumed the role of Commander Field Army in 2016. General Patchett then took command of Joint Force Command, which was renamed Strategic Command in December 2019. In June 2022, General Patchett became Chief of General Staff and Professional Head of the British Army. General Sir Patrick, very, very kind of you to spare the time to talk to us. Welcome to the Cal and the podcast. Thanks, Henry. Um, so we start sort of straight into onto the brass tacks. What, what does leadership mean to you? It's a force that causes men and women to do things that are often against their nature. And it doesn't always have to be like that. It can simply be about inspiring and creating the environment for people to be their very best and to, to get after sort of team tasks uh, within an organisation. But at its most extreme, it's what I said, it's, it's about individuals taking personal risk for the sake of people around them or for the sake of the mission. And it's very often leadership bottom-up that creates those moments of magic. Mm. You know, it's the, it's the young platoon commander who stands up under fire, or it's the young NCO who takes uh, a moral stand over something against the sort of prevailing team spirit. So physical and moral courage writ large yeah yeah it has to have those two components you know you if you're not taking risks you're probably not leading uh those can be emotional risks they can be risks to do with your position in a team or a group it can be risks to do with your career and it can absolutely be around physical risks Mm. so so if we if we may quite often through the course of the the guests that we've kindly had on the on the podcast, I, I quite often ask a, a question about whether leaders are born or made, but perhaps we might delve a little deeper today and, and see what shaped you as a leader. Is it nature or nurture? I, I think leaders are, are made. I mean, there are exceptions. There are some people who just have extraordinary personal characteristics that, uh, that make them a natural. But for most of us, I think, I think we're made and we're shaped and we're influenced by what goes on around us. Some of that in a very structured way, in the way that you know, we seek to do here at Sandhurst and the other great leadership academies that do the same thing. But I think it's more formative. Um, so no, I'm, I'm firmly in the, in the made camp. And do you think as you, and, and this might sound like it's an end game, but as you reflect on your career, do you think that there are obvious moments when your leadership style has changed or you fundamentally have had to perhaps adapt the way in which you lead at various different levels, consciously you've, you've led 
on operations, certainly, but you've led at every level in the, in the army. Is that something that you're conscious of, or do you think that's just something that happens subliminally? No, I think you have to adapt. And the, you know, the, the leadership style that we, that we all develop and exercise at, at more junior levels tends to be very direct leadership. You, know, you can see the people that you're leading um, or the people that you're being led by, because there's a mm. component of followership as well. But the more senior you become, the larger the organization that you're responsible for the more that the leadership style you're exercising is, is indirect, it's through other people. And if you're not able to make that transition, then um, you probably won't get the most out of the organization. You know, if you try to lead directly, mm. then you will stifle the creativity, um, the initiative, and that magical spark of leadership that you want. But I think primarily leadership is about getting others to lead. You know, it's about setting the conditions so that others can step forward and lead. I would say that it's unique because, of course, I'm a rifleman, but it's probably true of all the different regiments in the army. But I come from a particular culture where we try to foster an environment of encouraging individual initiative and personal risk-taking. And so leadership at a junior level in the regiment I grew up with was as much about creating the conditions for young riflemen now rifle women to exercise their initiative and to, to lead themselves. Mm. The leadership followership piece, perhaps we might play that out a bit. We, we certainly talk about it a lot here at the Centre for Army Leadership. We've, we've done a lot of work into it. We've, we've done a lot of studies into it. How can we inculcate that, but keeping it within the bounds of an understandable and recognisable necessity for, for any hierarchy, but also make commanders and senior leaders feel comfortable with the fact that actually on occasion those junior to them might be the best person to lead that event that activity or that problem that they're dealing with so i've always sort of taken the view that the, the best organizations are those that have a spirit of equality you know i am no better than you but you operate within a defined hierarchy so there's that sense of equal respect for the people that you're leading and if you're going to create followership or the conditions for followership, it's very much about how you lead. Because if, you, if you're not prepared to create the room, the space for people to follow, if you're not prepared to define the operating space in which they have, if you're not clear about the intent that you're expressing, it's very difficult then for people to follow. And the most important quality in all of this, I think, is, is trust. So if you don't set an environment where there's absolute trust between superiors and subordinates, then you'll never get followership. So trust is the single most important factor, I think, in mission command and in leadership. Mm. You know, we, we did a lot of work into trying to understand what, perhaps if there is one, what the core tenant of leadership is. And I think we, we certainly hit on trust being a critical component of the relationships that we build. But when we talk about followership, do you think we are educating people to understand that even at the very highest ranks, sometimes it pays to be a follower, even though you might be a person in command, whether it's a, in a command appointment, a brigade, a battle group, whatever it may be. Sometimes actually there might be someone else in the room who's better placed yeah. to lead that and therefore we get behind them and, and become followers. Yes. And, and sometimes, uh, so we talk about command and control, don't mm. we? You know, leadership is something that enables you to command. We tend to focus far too much on control. And it's a, it's a controlling impulse that sometimes stifles initiative and stifles junior leadership. And so you can be comfortable, I think, as a commander and as a leader, 
in allowing others and often more junior ones to step forward and lead because they might be the right person at the right time. But if you overplay the control impulse, then it becomes much trickier. Mm. So I think just naturally flowing along from that, you know, we're, here we are sitting in Sandhurst trying try and bring that in at the earliest stage about the, the very subtle differences between command, leadership and management. You, you're, you're rightly hitting on command and command and control being a, 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 one of the, the key elements of success in an event or activity. But we revert back to leadership being the central component of that. What about the management aspect of our organization and our people and, and whether we're getting that inculcated early enough? So, so management is about the effective direction of resources. It's about organizing around success. And that, that's the crucial bit for me. So if you can create an organizational culture and a structure that can deliver success aligned to resources and the leanest, most efficient way of doing things so that you can generate tempo and momentum, mm. then you're probably hitting on the right notes as a manager. Where management um, often gets snarled up is in process and bureaucracy and blind application of, of policy. So management is a necessary skill. It's a critical skill if you're mm. going to think through organizational design for success. Mm. Um, but it is a supporting and subordinate function for my money to command the leadership. So if we get back to, to sort of you as a person uh, for a moment, with what you've learned and seen and experienced, do you think what you've done and achieved, does that mirror your expectations when you started and the reason why you joined the army? No, I mean, which, which, which of us joins, joins the army think that we're going to end up with CGS? Um, no, I mean, it certainly, certainly confounded the expectations of, of, uh, of my first platoon sergeant and indeed my colour sergeant here at Sandhurst, who would, who would never have seen this coming. Um, but I think one of the, and one of the reasons I've, I've stayed in the army and I'm so devoted to it, I love it so much, is because it's an organisation that I think is fantastically forgiving and tolerant and gives you space to grow mm. and space to make mistakes. Mm. So I learned a lot from failure and I was lucky that, that you know, I failed at every level, but I failed quite hard quite early on. Really? So, you know, I got thrown out of university uh, on, a, on a cadetship after my first year for a combination of not working hard enough and misbehavior. You go straight to Sandhurst, don't pass go, don't collect 200 quid. And then at Sandhurst, accumulated what must have been the worst disciplinary record of any officer in history. About 40 days of restrictions of privilege. Uh, there's people listening who are deeply encouraged by their own position right now. Bust from Cadet Corporal. And yet, there was nothing so heinous that they couldn't see the potential in me. And then I got to a platoon where I made, I mean, probably every single mistake that a young officer can make, you know, ranging from getting my platoon lost to... Um, to over-familiarity, um, to trying a, an excessively ambitious plan that fell apart, you know. But the, the people around me always encouraged me. They'd hold me to account. Um, and so you grow. And you grow through failure and mistakes. Um, and then suddenly you wake up one day and you find that, much to your surprise and everyone else's around you, you're actually quite competent. Um, and from that you gain confidence mm. and then you begin to see, you don't see the limits of your capabilities. Those mm. limits fall away and you just continue to try to do the best you can at each level and in each job mm. with just enough ambition to make sure that you're, you know, you're not becoming comfortable, 
and that you're getting the best out of yourself and your organization. But no, I, um, I never saw this coming. I think most of our color sergeants, frankly, so when we were cadets, Santos would be amazed where, where any of us have got to. Uh, and I think they'd all agree. Um, a really interesting point. You know, it is a forgiving organization if one is still willing to learn and to continue to strive to be the best or improve. And it not only improve one's own abilities, but also those around them. And it goes back to your point about you know, the, the central purpose of leadership. Uh, and and you know, the system will allow you to do a regain if you're willing to accept it. Do you think we're still in that position? Uh, your point about learning from failure or failures is, is really important. And we, we talk about it a lot, pushing the boundaries so you know where the, the edge of one's personal and collective capability is. Would you be at all wary about the environment we live in is becoming more litigious? There are degrees more policy and, and, and direction that we have to adhere to. Do you think that that is becoming more restrictive? And that we still have that ability to allow people to to get to the point of failure, not to fail, but to get to the point of failure. Oh, I think I'd go farther. You have to fail. So when I was commanding the third division and the CFA, this was something that I was constantly trying mm. to inculcate into the division and then into the field army, which is that if you if you don't fail, particularly in training, mm. then you're not learning. And so, you know, when I went through Bassus before we went to Basra in 2007 as a battle group commander. I don't really remember the missions that went well, but my goodness, the mission that I cocked out as a battle group commander um, and the casualties we took, that was absolutely seared on my memory. It's more visceral. Yeah. I mean, I learned so much from that failed mission. And so when we reset and went on to the next mission, you know, I put all of those mistakes right and then we did okay. So I think, first of all, it's not enough to approach the point of failure. You have to fail if you're going to learn from it. I'm not talking about, you know, incompetence. You know, there's a limit to what sort of failures we can tolerate, you know, if it's, if it's dangerous or, um, or if it's illegal or if it's just dishonest. That's, that's not what we're talking about. Mm. But if you want to stimulate the sort of creativity and initiative that we know is what gains success in battle, and this is an army whose purpose is to win and fight wars on mm. land, and if we're not preparing ourselves for that, then everything else is peripheral. You have to be prepared to fail. So setting that environment is absolutely critical. Mm. I, I do worry about the increasing layer of constraints. Mm. You know, we can all point to things, whether it's overinterpretation of policy, whether it's safety notices on vehicles that limit you. Um, I worry about the impact of things like litigation in, in warfare, so lawfare, and whether or not that holds people back at a, at a critical moment in, um, in an engagement. But it doesn't mean that you shouldn't keep trying and you shouldn't continue to try to, to push back on these constraints. Mm. That there is a real danger of being too restrictive in training or not allowing training to, to iron out those problems that we actually have transference of risk onto operations, which, of course, is yeah. what we're trying to avoid. Yeah. Anyway, if you look at some of our finest troops, you look into the special forces, one of the sets of skills that they try to encourage is to, is to learn how to break the rules. You know, mm. th there are times where where knowing and having the confidence and the courage to break rules because it feels like the right thing to do. It's an important set of qualities. You, you, need, you need some buccaneers and some mavericks and some pirates, as well as some regulators. You need mm -hmm. rank catchers and regulators. You, you hit on a point there, which is, I think, a really, really important one for all of us listening, you know, about the purpose of the army. As the common operating environment starts to unfold and we see greater 
concern over malign state activity. Whereas, you know, certainly for the last 20 years, my, my generation, uh, since we left Sandhurst in the early 2000s, has been purely focused almost solely on countering violent extremist organisational activity. What, what challenges might there be for leaders of all ranks who you know, have, have yet to have to meet peer or near peer adversaries? And do, their, do those subtleties transcend into how we lead people or how we lead on the battlefield? Or do you think that's synonymous with whatever threat we're facing? Well, let's be clear. I mean, none of us have been involved in a peer and peer conflict. None of us who are serving have, have ended up in a, a, a fight with a peer. Mm. Um, and, and let's hope it stays that way. Um, but I think that the lessons um, that we teach here at Sandhurst and at Brecon and at Catrick and in all of our great schools, and we try to live through the army, are drawn on the basis of historical evidence and our own performance. And so the sort of skills, the sort of junior leadership that I saw being exercised in Afghanistan mm. or in Basra when I was deployed out there is the same leadership that you're going to need in a, in a peer-on-peer conflict. And we have an extraordinary record performance. It's what has won us the global respect and influence that we have as a nation and as an army, that strong historical record of performance. And that has been often in peer-on-peer conflicts. Mm. So um, there's a scale, there's a resilience, there's a level of violence around peer-on-peer conflict, which none of us are accustomed to. But the essence of leadership that we create and we prize in the army, I think, is as applicable to what we might see in, God forbid, uh, a fight against Russia or another peer, as we saw in Iraq and Afghanistan. Mm. Well, one might argue that the current generation and the, the adaptive training that that's then allowed to, to foster, you know, it's actually, in many respects, harder to be a soldier in the most recent environment where one didn't know necessarily where one's enemy was or who one's enemy is. I once had the privilege of talking to a, a Second World War veteran and said, you know, we had it easy. We knew who our enemy were and what they were going to do. And you know, I wonder whether that sort of maybe has an effect on how we've evolved and, and what we might do next in terms of where we're going to fight, knowing that we're going to always be in an environment where we're, the fight will be amongst the people or people and how we adapt to that. Do you think there's any relevance in that? I think that a lot of the things that we, we've really prized in these, in these recent conflicts do extend. They are transferable. So operating within the right moral framework is, is absolutely crucial. And, and thankfully, there'll be, there'll be very few. But, but where soldiers become a moral hazard on the battlefield, and we've seen it playing out in front of us in, in Ukraine, in Bucha, mm-hmm. it, it fundamentally undermines and corrodes the professionalism, the ethos, and the confidence that allies and our own population have in the army. Yeah. It's certainly a theme that's come up in, in previous conversations uh, on, on the podcast about how we might fight or counter a foe, and we've, we've, we've got experiences of it, of course, whose values-based set of rules are purely about winning, whereas we try to adhere to and rightly embrace the importance of an inclusive, diverse organisation that follows a very clear set of values and standards and rules. When it comes down to the, the really binary problem of winning a fight, do you think that's something we haven't had to encounter as a generation for a long time? How do you think that's going to impact and affect or might affect how we, how we operate as an army? So armies don't fight wars, nations do. 
And if we find ourselves fighting at that scale, then we are going to be drawing on the whole of society and the whole of the country to be involved in that war. Mm. And citizen soldiers need a sense of, of moral justice. They need a sense of a cause. Wavell, when he wrote about, uh, about why men fight, well, and he talked about morale. One of the most important components he pointed to was the sense of, of belief in a cause. Now, I commanded a professional um, battle group, professional in the sense of volunteer soldiers, uh, for a very, very torrid, bloody six-month period in, in Basra in 2007. Mm-hmm. And no one could really point to a cause in Iraq. And yet, you know, we had soldiers going out the gates. We were, you know, under fire every day. You can point to the same experience that other battle groups had in Afghanistan and Sangin in particular. Mm-hmm. And that they were a professional force. But once you transition to a, to a citizen army, as the Ukrainians have had to do, you know, look at the difference. You do need a sense of a cause. You need a sense of moral rightness. And if you haven't inculcated that moral framework in the professional force into which that wider force will integrate, mm. then, then you're lost. Mm. Um, so we are, you know, we're not just the guardians of, of professional standards as, as a professional standing army, but we're also the guardians of those moral standards when the army does need to expand. Mm. Um, and if we don't inculcate that right from the start into the force and our thinking and our leadership, then things will go wrong. Mm. We have some very interesting conversations with those people who've got to know through, through our work here at the Cal in public-private sector, sports industry, about their values and standards and ours and how we inculcate them at the very lowest level all the way through our training. And you, know, you are a champion, our champion of values and standards, taken very seriously. And recently, our teamwork and our focus on, on those things that perhaps haven't worked recently and how we can improve. How might we measure the success or, or impact of these, these focus periods on who we are and what we purport to be? I mean, there are very specific ways that you can measure, measure it through you know, the, the, the composition of the army. You know, how diverse are we? Then there's sort of sentiment around how included do people feel, um, their confidence in coming forward to the chain of command or to the organization when they feel that an injustice has been done mm-hmm. or something's gone wrong. You, know, you, can, you can measure those things, and we do, and the evidence that we've got is that we are far from where we need to be. But the ultimate arbiter, the ultimate judge, and this is why we call it teamwork, is because it's about operational effectiveness. And you, know, you look at those two armies that we are watching fighting in Ukraine at the moment, mm. one that has nothing but contempt for human life and the human lives of its own soldiers, and one that is drawn from across the whole of society, that it's incredibly diverse. And this, I, you know, I know which army I would want to be part of. The one that is showing more imagination, more courage, more initiative, more innovation, because it's drawing from the full, rich diversity of all of society. Mm. And it's creating an environment in which people are fighting as teams. And so they respect each other. Um, So every time I hear of or see something that, that isolates or excludes people, every time I hear of the experience of whether it's, whether it's a woman or whether it's someone from the BME community who has been excluded, I know that that team is weaker. 
I know that there's something wrong there. And if you want to tap into people's potential, they've got to feel as if they can be themselves mm -hmm. and bring everything with them. And that's why, that's why we do things like teamwork. Because ultimately, if we can't create that extraordinary magic that you get in a team where people have got mutual respect, mutual trust, and you know, under pressure often, mutual love for each other, very least mutual affection, mm. then, um, then you're never going to get to, to the, the limits of the potential that we've got. Mm. And of course, ultimately, a lot of that stems from sound and conscientious leadership. Yes, yes, but it's not just the responsibility of the leaders. You know, it's leadership in the sense that every single one of us is a leader. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think that's, that chimes with so much of what we all think and consider about a diverse organisation that is, a, is reflective of the society that we live in is so important. But, and then that inclusivity of thought and thinking that allows us to therefore be more diverse in how we approach problems, how we deal with issues. Um, you, you referenced the, the work and the, the, you know, the amazing valour that we're seeing played out in Ukraine and, and how they're, they're all coming together. They face an existential threat. How do you think we are able to differentiate command on the battlefield, which is often actually quite straightforward if we're, if we're honest, because it's what we're there to do, it's what we're taught to do, we, it's a process, versus leadership in barracks, which probably presents the greatest challenge for us as, as leaders of every level, trying to get people to do the things we want to do and perhaps they don't necessarily want to. How do we, how do we help and support those especially junior um, listeners, you know, young, young section commanders or young, um, young lance corporals who are in their first command appointment, who are trying very hard to differentiate themselves from, from the, the pack and now they're actually responsible for some of it in camp versus what they can do in the, in, in, in when they're doing their day-to-day -day job in the, in the field, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, I think one leads to the other. If you don't get it right, if you don't attend to developing those skills and those, those, those leadership behaviours, in camp, in barracks, and in training, then you'll never get them in the field. Mm -hmm. So it, that's where it starts. And we all know that you know the hardest, you know, the hardest day in any soldier's life will be when he or she is promoted to lance corporal and is responsible for a group of his or her peers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, it's a big step. And so it, it, you know, it comes back to um, the motto from this place: serve to lead. You know, mm -hmm. if 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 the led feel that they are being served by the leader, that he or she has fundamentally their interests at heart, mm. that you are fair, that you are straight, that you are fighting for them, then you'll earn that respect. You'll grow that natural authority. And then accompanied with the professional skills that you develop in whatever role you're in, you, you, you grow in authority, mm. in stature, in respect. But leadership is fundamentally about looking after the people that you're responsible for. It's, it's the first step in any deal between mm. A leader in the lead. Uh, that's at uh, gaining trust yeah. at the at the lowest level. And so you know, yes, that, that servant leadership ideal is is often brought home pretty quickly. Yeah. And then sometimes you have to take a tough decision to to nick one of your mates. <laughs> yes. And that's just hard. But that's so interesting about that when we unpack it, we, we see it playing out before us. Maybe maybe we we are who are a little more older, maybe in some positions, not so wise, but, you know, we look at our young officers and our young leaders, section commanders or Lance Corporals, corporals about how they are suddenly put in this position and, and differentiating between, you know, as a young platoon commander, you, you're, you are at times the follower to the platoon sergeant. Absolutely. Not just the platoon sergeant, the section commanders, <laughs> and sometimes some of the senior riflemen. 
you know, it's a it's a it's a school of hard knocks. But mm. that's that was my point right at the start of this conversation, yeah. where I, you know, I talked about being having the room to make mistakes. Mm. And those first two years in any command appointment, whether it's as a section command, a section two IC, or as a platoon commander, or a troop leader, or whatever it is, that's when you're making these mistakes and you're forming mm. yourself. I'll never forget, and I fell into classic young officer trap of over-familiarity um, when I was a young platoon commander. And um, I had a, an old, tough uh, rifleman called Jock Weir. And I was, I think the duty officer went into the naffy and there was Jock sitting on his own with a pint. So I went up next to him and lived in the platoon for about six months. And I said, uh, I said, right, Jock. Um, and he looked at me and he said, he said, it's rifleman Weir to you, sir. And I suddenly realized that I was making assumptions about our relationship, which, mm. which didn't demonstrate enough respect to him. Mm. So you learn those lessons about the difference between popularity and respect mm. and what it is that soldiers and the leaders and the led, you know, what that bargain is. Um, it's a lesson I've never forgot. Mm. And of course, for, for those listening, you know, rifleman is, a, is, a, is in effect a, a rank. But it's both a rank and it's an identity. Yep. And you know, there might be there might be a question about whether we, in the environment we live in, whether actually that's, that's as equal as it could be. Yeah. Uh, we look at guardsmen, we look at, you know, at, at various different ranks, which are, you know, maybe too specific. Is that something that you've, you've considered over the yeah. last couple of years? I, I, don't, I mean, I'm thinking about it at the moment because, um, so we were, you know, off the back of teamwork, we mm. were precisely these conversations. And I, I was sitting down with the Army Service Women's Network the other day. And I, you know, I've heard two things. So from, from a female section commander who was commanding a section in one of the rifles battalions, you know, she stood up, uh, talked about some of the experiences she'd had as a woman in the army and coming into the regiment. Not all of them were pretty, but at the end of it, she said, but be really clear, you know, don't you dare take this rank away from me because I am proud to be a rifleman. That's my, that's my rank as much as it is yours. But on the other hand, I hear from a lot of women that these small things are the things that exclude. You know, it's like saying blokes or guys, or it's, you know, it's coded masculine language. Mm. And there is no getting away from it that, that rifleman and guardsman is a masculine coded appointment and title and identity. And we have to think through how we get after that. Mm. I think I would echo your point. I had the same conversation commanding Foot Guards Battalion, which was the first to receive a female guardsman who were very clear that they want to be known as and referred to as guardsmen. And, but I'm absolutely sure, and, and rightly so, that there are others who would actually question that. And are they just saying that because they don't want to rock the boat? Mm, mm. And they don't want to be seen the one to unpick it. Mm. So it, it's a, I think it is a, it's, it's something that we need to think about really carefully and really okay. hard. Because um, we know that at the moment, the experience of women in our army is not what it should be. Mm. Most of them love it, but there's still not enough of what we'd want to see. Mm. Well, it's really good to hear that it's being discussed at the very highest levels, and I know that there'll be a lot of people encouraged by that, which is which is good. With regards to the, the scorching advance of technology uh, on a day-to-day basis, things become more accessible to us, uh, technology advances at a pace. Do you think the digital and technological revolution is going to affect leadership as we know it? Uh, you know, I refer sort of previous guests, General McChrystal referred to this increasing eyes-on, hands-off concept of leadership. Now, that might be true at the very highest level, but as we become more technologically savvy, but more reliant upon technology, how do you think that might affect how we are as leaders and, and how we evolve? So I think 
uh, what Stan Christopher was talking about, was more what I would describe as command than leadership. Mm -hmm. okay. And I think you absolutely have to adapt uh, how we command and how we manage to take account of the realities of mm. digital technology. And there's huge amounts of opportunity in that. Um, so we have seen the emergence of algorithmic warfare where we're exploiting artificial intelligence and machine learning to turn data to our advantage and against the enemy um, in a way that vastly increases the speed and tempo of targeting cycles. That Those are command techniques, right? Um, I'm not sure myself how it affects leadership. If, if leadership is a, is, a, is a set of characteristics and skills, if it's an art to persuade, to inspire, to compel people to do things, mm -hmm. um, then I've not yet worked out for myself what impact the digital revolution has on actual leadership itself. Mm. Other than how we do this organically through the use of social media and so on. It's, a, it's an issue, isn't it? How we can be the greatest beneficiaries of it, but on other occasions it can be something that causes quite considerable amounts of thought to be given to how one acts, reacts, and deals with circumstances, situations, and, and ultimately people. Yeah, and it's, you know, it, if it's helping you gather data and information so that you can make better decisions as a leader, mm. if it's helping you communicate, if you can exploit to communicate mm. more clearly and more immediately, um, then, then those, those have to be benefits as well. Mm. Um, but I think those are facets of, of our daily lives mm. that we adapt. Mm. Uh, so very conscious of time, um, if I may, a couple more questions. And if I, if I can, probably quite a personal one. You, you, you talk very openly about your personal struggles with mental health. Uh, on a previous podcast, we had Alistair Campbell very, very kindly spoke at length about both his own really difficult struggles and, and indeed his brother who'd been in the who'd been in the Scots Guards. What, what advice might you have for for people of every level, of every rank, of, indeed of all our listeners who are not even in the military? Uh, and, you know, what, what, what advice might you have about how one might deal with the you know, internal struggles that, that might be getting, frankly, too much for someone? I think the first thing to say is that um, I, I don't know anybody who doesn't struggle with mental health from time to time. Mm. Because it's just a feature of life, mm. you know, in the same way that you can pick up a physical injury or you can feel under the weather, you will be exactly the same. And so the first thing to recognize is this is just normal and it's part of life. And so any sense that there is some kind of stigma around saying, I'm not feeling too well today or I'm having a really low period, we need to dispel that. Because if the purpose of leaders is to look after, is to serve, mm. That the, the led, you, you've got to be able to have those conversations openly. Um, people tend to think about coping strategies. The coping strategies are really good. You know, it's often around drinking or hiding. None of those work. So you, you have to think about preventative strategies. And prevention is, is the basics. Um, you know, it's first of all being open and communicating about it. You know, the reason. The reason that, that I did, I didn't want to make a big thing about it. It's just that I saw off the back of the last 15 years, so many of my soldiers, my contemporaries, my peers who struggled up and down that it just seemed to me natural to be talking about it openly. Mm. And then the second is just getting the basics right, you know, talking to each other about it, um, keeping yourself in good physical condition, because mm. that, you know, there is a single silver bullet. You know, which of us doesn't enjoy good sleep and good exercise? Mm. We may not get up, enjoy getting up at sort of four or five or six o'clock on a cold morning and going out 
do some fizz. Um, but which of us doesn't enjoy that amazing endorphin rush that you get afterwards mm. feeling in the shower? And it runs you through the rest of the day. Mm. And then you stick well. Um, and the good news is that you've got to do that as a soldier anyway, so you might as well make the most of it. Might as well. And there might be a few out there who, who balk at the idea of going for a run. But I think your, your, open, your openness and honesty is, is something that actually transcends not just you as, as, as chief of general staff, but, but talking to people is so important. Yeah. And having maybe someone or somebody you can go and have a chat with, whether it's a mate, whether it's a peer, whether it's even a subordinate, go and have a have a conversation and understand and let them inside who you are. You know, it allows the human aspect of you as a person, you as a leader, and yeah. then understanding. You know, and, and as senior commanders, whether they're companies and majors, whether they're battle group commanders, brigade commanders, you know, having that, that moment of being able to talk about the pressures that perhaps we're all under is so important. Yeah. So I'm not going to let you off the just yet. At the end of all of our uh, conversations, a couple of minutes, uh, we always ask some quick-fire questions, which I deliberately haven't allowed you to have any preparation for, in spite of people pressurising me to, to get very clear. And just for the record, the, the general has not seen any of the questions because I think it's much more important that we, we have an honest and open chat. So, so who, uh, who's the best leader you've ever worked with and why? So many. Um, so I, I, yeah, I'm not going to point to one because it'll embarrass, it'll embarrass the living. I think that's um, important. Rob Cutler, who I've grown up with serving, um, was a brilliant rifleman and just got better and better at every level. Extraordinary professional human leader. What, what, does, what does Rob do? Rob is now Lieutenant Colonel Ellie, just retired. Mm. It's always fascinating to hear, and it's always interesting watching people's reaction when you ask them that question. But very interestingly uh, to hear senior leaders very often will will refer to someone that's had influence on them who perhaps was a subordinate, which goes back to that bit about where we, where we learn and understand our leadership roles. Um, who's the most inspirational leader in history to you and why? Nelson. Um, so if you read up around Nelson, his ability to forge trust and a common sense of purpose mm. and to uh, create a spirit of mission command in a dispersed fleet was extraordinary. So it's the purest expression I think I've ever seen of mission command, probably the Royal Navy operating under Nelson. Mm. Yeah. What's the most valuable leadership lesson you've learned? Humility. If you don't come into every conversation and every job with a very strong sense of uh, your own frailty and the fact that probably there's bound to be at least one person in the room who's got a better idea than you, then you don't get the best out of the organisation. Mm. And, and finally, so in reflection, uh, if you were able to, what would be the one thing that you advised the young Patrick Sanders as he drove in through the gates of Sanders on his first day here? So don't get as many ROPs. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I, um, I think the beauty of youth, and most soldiers are young, is that they don't have a sense of their own limits. And that is why the young are so important and why often they're the ones that make the difference in wars. So I think our, our training system and our leadership system has to guide and enrich that. But what we must never do is try to tell soldiers what they can't do. Mm. We should be removing the sense of limits and constraints. Wonderful. So thank you so much for giving your time. I know you are incredibly busy, but it's been a privilege. 
And I know we've all will have learned an awful lot. Thank you very much, sir. Thanks, Henry. As ever, a fascinating insight into the personal experiences and motivations of someone who has reached the very top in terms of their ability to lead. Having served and led at every rank, General Sir Patrick noted that as one becomes more senior and the larger the organisation you are leading, the greater you must rely on leading through other people, allowing others to lead for you. Often, if you try to lead directly, you will stifle the creativity and initiative in others that is so vitally important, stressing the importance of encouraging initiative and risk-taking at the lowest level. In unpicking this, we discussed how one creates the conditions for effective followership. In essence, General Sir Patrick's view was about setting a clear intent and creating the room and space to follow. It is a two-way process where a leader can at times become follower and that it is underpinned by a single critical factor, trust. We discussed how we learn and develop both as individuals and also as an organisation. General Sir Patrick stressed the importance of pushing one's boundaries to determine where the edges of capability may be and being comfortable with failure. Indeed, at times, if you're not failing, you're not learning. It's not good enough to simply approach the point of failure. You must fail in order to learn, but failure must be constructive and accepted as a necessary learning process. This encourages the level of creativity and initiative that allows us to fight and win wars on land. We finish by emphasizing the servant nature of British Army leadership, where respect for the leader is earned when those being led feel that you have their best interests at heart. Ultimately, leadership is fundamentally about looking after and serving the people that you are responsible for. If you've enjoyed what you've heard today, do please subscribe to our podcast. Please also share and comment. For more information on British Army leadership and to get in touch with anyone on the team, please visit our website. And of course, follow us on social media, Twitter, Facebook and LinkedIn.